Welcome to another episode of Niche to Necessity. Today we have a special guest, Nick, Crypto Nick Ferrer. Uh, he's a CPA and he is the man spearheading the digital asset practice at Forvis, um, which is a top 10 accounting firm. Welcome, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me, Taylor. Super excited to talk to you today. Yeah, really glad to fi finally have you on the show. Um, would love to kind of give it, get a little bit of sense for our viewers just kind of how you got into the world of, uh, of, of accounting for digital assets and kind of like, yeah, what was that aha moment for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, my, my story goes all the way back to 2014. Uh, I was living in Dallas at the time. I grew up in Indiana, reconnected with another friend that also grew up in Indiana while I was in Dallas. We went to a, a Texas Rangers baseball game and um, he's sitting there talking to me about Bitcoin and the way he just talked about it, he was super convicted um, and he just believed with the utmost certainty that Bitcoin was the future. And I am un unhappy to tell you that I laughed in his face and just kind of <laughs> told him like, listen, this isn't going to go anywhere. I don't really believe in it. You're crazy. All those sorts of things that people go through. Right. And to give him credit, uh, he, not only did he tell me with conviction that Bitcoin is the future and all this stuff and try to get me into it, but he did also tell me to do my own research. And so, you know, we stayed in touch for the next few years. And finally, in early 2017, out of spite to prove him wrong about his conviction with Bitcoin, I decided to do my own research. And I went down the rabbit hole and you know, watched uh, several Andres Antonopoulos videos on YouTube, uh, crypto Twitter, all sorts of things. And the realization I came to was like, wow, this guy's right. And I should have been listening to him all along. So I ended up buying you know, my first fraction of a Bitcoin in, in 2017 on, on GDAX, um, back whenever it was, it was GDAX. And, and like I said, to my friend's uh, credit, you know, he told me to do my own research and he also didn't let me stop by just buying Bitcoin on GDAX and leaving it there on the exchange. He highly encouraged me to, to perform an on-chain transaction, store it in self-custody. And through all of that process, I just learned a ton about Bitcoin and, and crypto in, in 2017. So I remember it clear as day. I approached my firm afterwards and just said, hey, can I write an article about Bitcoin. I just learned a bunch about how it works, all these different things, just did all this research. I think that, you know, this could add value to our clients. And they agreed, um, you know, we're, we're an account, big accounting firm, so we're conservative. So luckily they agreed. And when it was finally published, uh, it actually took a long time to be published. I think it came out in early 2018 because of all the the risk reviews that it went through. But <laughs> uh, uh, when you write an article in a firm, you almost instantly become the the quote unquote expert. Um, and, and in reality, I was I was a nobody. Um, you know, <laughs> I had just a few years of experience. Um, but partners now were in the firm coming to me with questions where they had you know clients with crypto and didn't know how to handle it. And so, um, you know, I just, I learned a lot through just saying yes to those questions whenever partners would bring those, those clients to me. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I blew the budget on the first couple of clients that I worked on because <laughs> actually I, I, I know I blew the budget just because I was trying to, you know, figure out, um, exactly what all goes on, but, you know, just gain experience 
um, that way. So that's kind of kind of high level my story. Yeah, I love it. I mean, the quickest way to get noticed anywhere is to to go into a niche that nobody else knows about. And so it sounds like you you kind of hit that one right on the head. Um, my my second question was about kind of how you decided or what inspired you to to spearhead that practice at Forbes. But it sounds like you kind of you 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 nailed that one as well. Um, what would you say are some specific accounting practices or you know traditional accounting practices that are disrupted by digital assets or that are made more difficult uh, by digital assets? Yeah, so. Um... You know, there's there's a ton of misconceptions, and I'm going to sound a, like a broken record uh, on this podcast today because, or on this recording today, because in my opinion, I think the the best thing that people can do is get their hands dirty. Um, you know, that's what I did whenever I first got started. You know, that that friend told me to, um, you know, perform an on chain transaction, self custody, all those sorts of things. Um, and even to this day. That's still how I learn about this space the most is I'll go in and get my hands dirty. So like if you think about DeFi summer in like 2020 and 2021, and then the, the NFT craze and all those sorts of things, you know, I was going in and playing around with some of these protocols, learning how to, you know, provide liquidity to a liquidity pool, how to uh, own an NFT, how to stake, all these different things that people talk about that are in the ecosystem. Um, and I still highly recommend if you're going to be a part of the space, you need to get your hands dirty. You need to actually understand the mechanics of how these things work. And there's such a uh, a learning curve when it comes to the the portfolio of words that we use in this space. I mean, staking like what i'd never even heard of that 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 word before you know entering the the digital asset space so um, there's a huge learning curve and i think getting your hands dirty is the best way to get involved and and understand what you need to do to be prepared for whenever clients come to you with these questions yeah i mean i i, I was uh i got involved in the space in 20 2018 like early 2018 and when i was on as cfo of TrustSwap, um, it was, we launched July, 2020. So it was like right in the heat of DeFi summer. Uh, it was right, it was right when Uniswap had its airdrop in September, you know, right after that. And it being at a high level in a firm, in a startup like that, you have to be involved in those DeFi transactions. And there was no guidance on how to account for any of these things. So we were providing liquidity to LP pools on, uh, on Uniswap. And so it was like, all right, well, who else is going to figure out how to do the accounting for it? You kind of have to get your feet wet and, and actually do this stuff and, and realize, okay, what traditional assets can I compare this to, to kind of draw a line in the sand and um, still a challenge, but you, you kind of have to put on your, your accounting theory hat a lot of the time and just kind of demystify the, the blockchain aspect of it. But I, I agree completely. The only way to really learn in this space is to do it and to have that experiential knowledge of actually performing the transactions. Otherwise, it's really hard to to have it all up in your brain without any actual visual representation of it. So and, I, I'm and with I don't you know there. about you, but but how many times did you go and try to do like an on-chain transaction, whatever it may have been, and you like not only double checked it, but triple checked it, quadruple mm -hmm. checked it, just because like, you know, if you click that send button, there's no going back. 
Yeah. Um, and there's just a huge learning curve when it comes to working with these new protocols, because, you know, you're, you're really just, you know, watching YouTube videos mm -hmm. from other, other DGENs, if you will, that have yeah. already done it before you have. Um, so it's kind of scary in, in a, in a certain respect. Yeah. And, uh, one, one, one exercise that I did when I was first getting started with DeFi was like, um, I mapped out in Excel, like a formula for how, uh, the price would change based on different um, values in like for the automated market maker, because it, essentially it's a numerator and denominator transaction, right? So um, th those types of things too, where you're like, okay, how much, how much liquidity do we need to move the price by this much? And, and, and analyzing that sort of stuff helps you really get into the, the details of like, okay, how is this operating under the service, uh, under the surface? So we really get a better handle of what's really going on there. So yeah, totally. Um, so Within Forvis, how has the company as a whole adapted to, you know, it's it, both its services and also kind of maybe some of the inner workings of the firm to accommodate the shift towards digital assets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, I think education is, is a huge key here. Um, you know, you and I have been in the space for a long time. We know that there's a ton of misinformation out there. I think the Wall Street Journal article that came out in the last month that cited the, you know, illicit activity that Hamas was was using in crypto, and then that being the only source for a letter that was signed by over 100 people in Congress, um, you know, it, it, and then and then later, the source of that Wall Street Journal article coming out and saying, no, that was completely uh, misrepresented. That's not mm -hmm. actually what happened. All those things happen all the time. Um, and in fact, I was presenting at a at a uh, conference this past week about crypto and a gentleman came up to me afterwards and he was telling me this story about how he was a, a cfo for uh, a large franchisee and several years ago they were hacked and the hacker demanded ransomware or, or sorry a ransom payment in in bitcoin and because of that he associated the hacker with bitcoin and now thinks that Bitcoin is inherently bad um, and will never overcome that hurdle because of that experience that he had to go through um, because he had to figure out how to come into ownership of Bitcoin and then send it to the the hacker. And it, at one point in this story, he's telling me this, he he, he was calling it a Bitcoin hacker. And it, I, in my mind, I'm just like, you know, <laughs> this this whole story just got so derailed because this this person associates bitcoin with somebody that that hacked his business um, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate and i think we're we're starting to see a lot less um, malicious activity on bitcoin and other public blockchains because all the transactions are traceable mm -hmm. so education first right um and educating our people um second i would say client acceptance is huge uh, when it comes to figuring out who we want to work with um, and, and to go a little bit further into why that's important. So first of all, we want to make sure, is this a client that we want to work with? And if we do, what are the risks if we do work with them, right? So we're asking things like, what experience do they have? What kind of records can they provide? Do they have a history of non-compliance? Are they coming to us to, to solve all of their problems or will they take ownership over the problems and can we then just be their trusted advisor 
what type of controls do they have in place? Um, but then, you know, on the flip side, you know, we're also asking ourselves, do we have the necessary skill set to serve this client at a high level? Do we have capacity to serve the client at a high level? All this goes into, um, you know, why, why we have a client acceptance policy to begin with is just to manage risk because we want to work with like-minded people. We want to be a firm that people associate with helping this industry mature versus <clears throat> just, you know, a firm that can crank out a tax return or some financial statements or whatever it may be that the client needs. Um, we want to add value to the industry. We want to add value to our clients. And so, um, you know, that's why client acceptance policies super important to us. And I know several other firms also have a client acceptance policy. In fact, uh, there was one firm, I will, uh, I won't mention any names, but um, they were an auditor of a crypto firm. And um, their, that, that crypto firm ended up doing some shady things. And the accounting firm, their insurance provider went to them and I'm paraphrasing here and basically said, you guys can continue to serve clients in the digital asset space, or you can have insurance. And so uh, I think that, that that public accounting firm decided, okay, we'll, we'll divest our digital asset book of business. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of risk that, that goes into working with clients in the space. And that's because we've had some, some bad actors in the past, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think having a policy like you're stating is is really important because ultimately you're going to have a lot of people who who are shopping around for advice as well, right? So people who want to hear an, a certain type of answer, so they're looking for a firm that will give them that answer um, when it may not be the right one um, because they don't either like the you know there are people who 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 still try to argue that you know you don't have any gains or losses or any reportable transactions until you cash out to fiat. Like that's one of the biggest myths, myths I hear all the time people using. And it's like, if you're in the U S that's just not true. Right. You know, we, we, we have to report crypto to crypto swaps. We have to report all these things. So if you're not willing to kind of work with us to get yourself in compliance, you know, then, then it's hard to work with a client at all. And, you know, also, if you have a client that doesn't have good records, it's a lot harder to complete that return because you're going to be finding out that, okay, well, the ins and outs don't match up. You definitely have some more wallets. Where are they? And so that adds time and it adds to the scope of it, which is harder to tell the client at the end of it as well. So really important to have those types of policies to protect your firm and to make sure that you're going in the right direction, you know, as, as a firm as well. Um, so as far as like, within within your firm you know how do you find the learning curve is for professionals within the firm that aren't kind of working in digital assets or aren't familiar with crypto to to learn how, and, and and does it vary based on their kind of generational gap like do you see it harder for maybe some of the boomers in your office to to adapt this or you know I don't want you to want to throw you under the bus at all either, you know, because I'm sure some of your partners are boomers, but like, is it harder to educate them or get them on board? It sounds like your, your firm was relatively receptive, but, you know, can you talk to a little bit to the educational and the, the learning curve aspect of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, I think frankly that there um, are, are people in any firm that just don't want to learn certain things in their careers. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe they're they're towards the tail end of their career and they see this as a new technology and they don't see it as maturing enough to where they're going to need to understand it before they retire. Um, I, I also think it's probably more, you can probably generalize it more in two buckets is the the people that are tech forward and the people that aren't tech forward. So the people mm-hmm. that are more tech forward are, are probably more likely to to want to learn and adapt a lot easier. And actually one thing that we did is we uh, we developed an internal, what we call a digital asset tax team. Um, and and this team is made up of, of specialists from um, all over the firm, but focal, uh, focus in uh, things like international, um, state and local tax, federal tax, um, controversy. So, you know, representing clients if, if they receive a notice, things like that. And so we all come together on a regular basis. We also share the workload. And that team is made up of of pretty much any every generation that's that's in the work workforce right now. Um, so it, it's it's been great. Um, I one thing I do wish is that there was a little bit more diversity in digital assets. Um, I think men are more likely to uh, want to learn about it and understand it more, and I think the the statistics would show that too. Um, and I, I, w- I wish that, you know, we could, we could shorten that gap and there would be a little bit more diversity in this practice. And I do work with some clients, their CFOs are, are, are women. So they're there. Um, it's just at, at a higher level, um, in men than women right now. Um, and, and again, like I said, I was going to sound like a broken record, but one of the things that we did with the digital asset tax team, whenever we first created that team to get the the entire team educated and on the same playing field is um, we said, take $25 and go perform an on-chain transaction and come back and present to us what you did. And that's basically all the parameters that we gave them. And that's because I believe in, and and we believe in getting your hands dirty and and truly getting involved and understanding how the mechanics of these things work. I got to get you guys in front of the uh, Tripper on the Cryptoverse I'm launching tomorrow. It's uh, basically the same what you're describing. We we go through uh, everything from on-ramping fiat to opening up a, a non-custodial wallet. We do DeFi swaps, lending and borrowing, liquidity providing, and then NFT purchasing. And then we reconcile it all um, by by like tracking it all on chain. So I got to I got to get 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 you guys into that course as well. Uh, I think it'll help help anyone else that you're adding into it is. Um, that's joining the firm that wants to join your practice specifically related to digital assets. So um, we'll, we'll talk more offline about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We'd love to. I, three, three hours of CPE too, right? Yep. Yep. That, so that's happening tomorrow. And then we'll do some, some replays of that eventually. And it'll also live in the crypto CFOs community. Uh, so if people want to do it on replay or pause and all that, they can, they can access it that way as well. So, um, so as far as, um, the regulatory environment for digital assets right now. We know that there's a lot going on right now. We had that, um, you know, the the Hamas issue with like all the, all those signatures that you that you alluded to earlier in the in the call. Could you share your kind of general perspective on the current re- regulatory environment for digital assets? Do you think it's moving in the right direction? Do you think you know maybe there's still not enough clarity? What, what, what do you think about all of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think in a lot of ways that the industry has has really been calling for regulation in the US for years. Um, You know, there's a ton of ambiguity right now. I think it's maturing. uh, But in the US, we still have a 
a long ways to go. Um, you know, you've seen other countries and other jurisdictions more forward on this and seizing the opportunity. You know, the EU, the UK, um, you know, Singapore, and then places like uh, uh, places in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia and those countries as well. So um, there's a lot of countries that are ahead of the U.S. right now from a regulatory perspective. And and honestly, I think what happened to FDX really set regulation in the U.S. back probably by years. Um, and it just it created a lot of trust issues. Uh, you know, Sam was the the poster boy of of crypto at the time. And um, unfortunately, there was a lot of people on the Hill in DC that, that trusted in him and believed in him. And when he broke that trust, it's almost like those trust issues were then just, um, you know, transferred over to the rest of the, of the industry, which is unfortunate. And honestly, the, the whole thing with Sam and, um, SBF is I, ever since he was, was tried, I honestly haven't been keeping up with it. Um, and, and that's because I feel like we should be focused on how we can, build and continue to help the industry mature as opposed to focusing on, you know, what's going to drive a headline. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, you know, there's a, we understand that there's a ton of gray area in when it comes to, to the regulatory guidance, especially you know, IRS, um, and, and accounting as well. Um, and, and we feel like it's important for our clients to present all of the options and then let them decide, what's applicable for their risk, risk appetite, if you will. So, so maybe one example is the IRS this year came out with, uh, I think it was IRS notice 2023-27 about uh, treating NFTs as collectibles. Mm -hmm. And basically in that notice, they say that they want to create a regime where you look through the NFT to decide if it's an, if it's a collectible or not. And if it is, then there's, a potentially higher tax rate. Well, that notice is really only applicable um, to the IRS themselves um, and can still be challenged in court. And it also asks for comments. So to say that that's final authoritative guidance that can be relied upon is not necessarily um, the, the, the right case. And so there's gray area there. Do you treat it as a collectible? Do you not? Well, we can present those facts to our clients and let them decide based on their risk appetite. It could very well be the IRS eventually comes out with authoritative guidance and says, yes, they are collectibles, in which case the client would have some exposure, but at least we presented all the options to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super important because people are going to have different risk appetites. Some people are going to want to be ultra conservative and, and be, be in that kind of wheelhouse. And other people are going to want to have their kind of Take, take that risk and maybe pay the price later if, if it goes sour, but are willing to do that. So that's important to be informing clients like that. That's great. Um, so as far as Forbes as a, as a firm, you know, how do you navigate, how does the firm navigate the complexities of compliance um, for both yourselves and for, for, for clients? How, how, how do you guys, do you guys have a framework for how you go about that? Yeah, absolutely. We, we've developed an internal framework. I mean, we've documented pretty much all of our, our positions and <clears> all of the, the gray areas. Um, one thing that's really cool that I think that, that we've done that I don't know a lot of firms can talk about is that we've actually developed our own blockchain application. Um, we, we saw the value in these public blockchains being immutable. 
And so, you know, we're organized as a partnership. And so whenever there's a, a vote um, up for the partners, we then record those partner votes in a blockchain based app and it's uh, hashed and, and then written to the, the Bitcoin blockchain so that we can leverage that uh, immutability of the blockchain. So, you know, we have that that real experience of developing a blockchain based app and, and you know, we're drinking our own champagne, eating our own dog food, if you will, um, whichever one you like to use. Um, and then, you know, I think leveraging tools that are available in, in the market as well is super important. So, you know, there's, there's some really good crypto accounting subledgers uh, available. Um, and it, it's just a matter of working with the right ones. Um, you know, some ones that we've used are uh, Cryptio, Bitwave, coin tracker, legible, so on and so forth. I mean, we could probably list, you know, a hundred of them if we wanted to, but those are some ones that we've used in the past. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Good choices for sure. I've heard great things about all of them. Um, what would you say are some of the most common misconceptions or concerns that your clients come to you with about digital assets? Yeah, you know, I heard you say earlier that one one common misconception that you are still seeing is that, you know, you don't you don't have any income or you don't have a taxable event until you liquidate back to cash. Mm -hmm. um, that's still, I think, a common misconception, but I'm seeing that decline. I think that there's there's more and more education around, you know, hey, all of these transactions, even if you trade from one crypto to another crypto uh, is still a taxable event. Um you know, one thing that I think is still a common misconception that I'm hearing in conversations is that, you know, crypto is not traceable. I don't know what, what you're seeing, Taylor. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see that too. Yeah. But but I think there are people in the market that still believe, hey, you know, there's no way the IRS can track me down. There's no way the government <laughs> can track me down. That's not necessarily true. I mean, if you have an on and off ramp, like a Coinbase or a Kraken or whatever it may be, and they're doing KYC, um, you know, the IRS has the ability to go in and, and figure out uh, all your transactions, basically. Um, it's mm -hmm. pseudo anonymous. It's not completely anonymous. So I think that's a big one. And we just saw Kraken, um, right? They had to comply with a John Doe summons and they mm -hmm. announced that they, they released a bunch of information on a lot of their mine, clients. Mine included. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They contacted <laughs> me let, letting me know that they, they, they gave up my data for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of it has to do with you know, ultimately these, whether or not they can, they have the capability to analyze it all and like do something with it right now, doesn't really matter because if you're under reporting by 25% or more, it extends the statute of limitation on that. If it's fraudulent what you're doing just or, or ne completely negligent, that can extend it even further. So, you know, whether or not they can look at everything right now and track you down specifically in this moment, doesn't really matter they're going to have the capability and they, they can leverage tools like Chainalysis and other kind of on-chain analytics firms that they can contract out to that have very robust data on this stuff. So they may not be able to, like you're saying, it may not be 100% accurate um, to be able to identify you, but they can get pretty close to 99.999%, right? Um, that it's you, especially, I would say the vast majority of people have done some sort of on-ramp either or off-ramp where they had to provide KYC. And so um, very true that I think that that's another huge misconception in the space. 
Absolutely. Um, that's interesting that you got a, a letter from Kraken in that too. Um, I, mm-hmm. a, a couple other misconceptions that I see, probably the biggest one when it comes to actual reporting, is that um, because crypto is treated as property, that you're only going to have capital gain or loss, which you and mm-hmm. I know, right? There are instances where that's not true and you could be reporting an ordinary income or loss, mm-hmm. right? So things like staking or yield farming, d- d- depending on what your risk appetite is, are likely ordinary income activities. And so making sure that you report those correctly um, it may not make a huge different difference if you're, you know, you have a short-term capital gain, right? That's going to be taxed at your ordinary rates anyways, but um, that's a big common misconception. Um, missing missing it whenever it comes to the net investment income as well, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that those capital gains and losses are reporting on, reported on the 8960, but also that staking income and some of those other, um, you know, investment activities that you're doing, making sure those get captured on the 8960. Um, and then, you know, I think just finally, just understanding that there is no hard and fast way to treat a lot of these transactions. We do have some guidance, but there is still a ton of gray area. And so I think some of our clients assume that, hey, we have all the answers. We know exactly how it's going to be reported, but that that may not be the case. We may be coming back to you, the client saying, hey, there's some gray area here. What What is your risk appetite and how would you like to report these? Yeah, I think that a good one for me was, uh, the, the transition from uni v2 to uni v3 really complicated things for me because when I first started in the industry I was like okay for sure you know when you're providing liquidity under uni v2 like you're selling both of these assets it makes sense to me that you're selling these two assets to purchase this other LP asset but now now that it's an nft you don't really dispose of that nft when you when you go to reclaim those assets so there's a lot of gray area that's a that's a good one that I use for an example where it's like you can, you can, it's not really entirely clear how we should be handling this from a, from an accounting and tax perspective. So like you say, we, we need to go, go back to the client and say, here, here, here are the facts, here are what we think. And here's what, um, here's the different ways it could go. How do you want to proceed? I think that's always, always a good way to, to, to proceed as a practice in general. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, there, there's, there's just so many, there's an endless amount of opportunities when it comes to this. And I mean, you could even get so granular to go in there and, and read the smart contract, right? Mm-hmm. And figure out what what is exactly going on from a technical perspective. But I think it's also important to to take a practical approach to, mm-hmm. you know, some of, some of these transactions may be so immaterial. It may be just better to just assume that you have zero cost basis mm-hmm. and just reporting it all as a gain. Mm-hmm. Um, versus, you know, paying my billing rate or your billing rate times the time it it takes for us to go in there and figure out what it is. You know, sometimes you for just a $5 transaction, a- that may yeah. not make sense, right? You know, like, so yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that um, drawing a line there is, is key as well of, of what, what, what spending the time, what areas spending the time makes a difference and makes sense as well for client. Because, you know, when I used to, I used to do this all for my family when we went, you know, cause they were involved during DeFi summer. And so I would be, uh, you know, I, this was before I was really familiar with, you know, the great tools that exist now for subledgers and for, for tax reporting. And I was doing it all manually in Excel. And so, you know, I'd spend 40 hours doing my own return because I had all these, you know, ins and outs and stuff like that. And obviously the tools make it a lot easier now, but, um, it, it, 
it's important to make sure that the things you're looking at are material and not not and, and actually going to make a difference at the end of the day. Um, so what are some innovative practices that Forvis has adopted in managing and reporting on digital assets? Yeah, you know, I talked about one of those earlier and, you know, just kind of drinking our own champagne. We built that own that own uh, blockchain based mm -hmm. app. Another thing that we we do from a risk perspective is we have our own what we call a concurring review. And anytime a client exceeds a certain threshold in digital asset activity during the year, we have that group, that team, that digital asset tax team that act as, you know, subject matter specialist. And they're there to answer questions as the return is being prepared instead of waiting until October 14th and mm -hmm. the, the partner on the, on the account being like, oh, hey, you know, by the way, I just noticed this client has crypto. Are we doing this right? And, you know, if, if they don't have any previous experience with crypto, chances are there's, there's probably something that they may have missed. So that concurring review is a big part of our quality. Um, and, you know, we really believe in, in instituting that, that practice so that we're catching things on the front end and not waiting until the last minute. Um, so working with our clients as things are being prepared versus um, on the back end. Yeah, I think another key aspect to that too is like, I mean, there's a, there's a deal of client education as as we've kind of alluded to on the call already, where you have to kind of like be like, hey, a lot of this documentation is not going to need to be on your end because we're going to be relying on your um, description of what happened. So educating your clients on keeping good records themselves, it's just so much more important with crypto than it, than it is for st stocks and things like that, because, you know, generally people have... Uh, you know, like a Fidelity account that's going to send them a 1099B, you'll get a 1099B from Coinbase or Kraken or whatever you use, but it's it's not going to capture all the information and they don't really have uh, a way to do that in an effective manner anyways. So educating clients as well and, and, and following clients along is so much more important in this space than it is in other spaces just because this is the complexity of everything and the detail that can be involved with all this. So really cool to see you guys have a, a policy for that as well. Yeah, um, while we're on the topic of 1099s, uh, what are your thoughts on the proposed regs? Um, I mean, I think if passed as, as is, it would be terrible for the industry. Um, but I don't see them passing as is. I think that they, you know, I, hopefully they'll listen to the comment, the comment periods. We kind of crafted one internally in the crypto CFOs community that we need to send off. Um, I think that having the way that they were originally drafted, it basically made something like MetaMask be, have a need to report. Right. And so it's not really conceivable for that to happen. So it just, it would effectively shut out any U S based investor from participating if they want to be compliant. And so for me, I think it's just, it's, it, it's, ludicrous but it's, it's drafted by people who have limited understanding i think you know on the on the subject and there's probably people who advise them on it that that know about these assets but if you wanted to stifle innovation i think feel like you implement these regs if you want to kind of um open things up a little bit more and it's not that i think the industry as a whole doesn't want regulation i think we just want sensible regulation that that that, that allows people to comply but also doesn't overburden the industry what are, what are your thoughts on 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 them? Yeah, I, I generally agree with you. I think it would stifle some innovation. And frankly, when I take a step back and think about, okay, well, what is this really trying to get at? 
Um, mm-hmm. To me, it feels more like an AML policy than a 1099 reporting policy. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, Treasury and the IRS, right? So Treasury is also the um, where where FinCEN is underneath, right? And so FinCEN, which is you know important for registering money service businesses and AML and all these sorts of things. To me, this feels like an, an AML policy, and so it's going to re- it's going to require these non-custodial wallets and exchanges to KYC. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think really at the end of the day, that's that's what this that's what the proposed regs are most aligned with is a new AML slash KYC process for non-custodial and on-chain transactions. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really don't think it solves much of a of an issue with actual tax reporting mm-hmm. and what do you think that would look like so from a like assuming that now metamask has to kyc us users now they have to kyc everyone to make sure that you're not a us user so do you think that that would i the way i see it is i feel like people would find ways or they would move to chains that allow them to do things without um you know maybe move towards more privacy coins or things like that so for me i think it's more of just like kicking the can down the road. Um, but I also, I, I, th- I think, I think you're absolutely right in that it's more of an anti-money laundering, uh, goal out, you know, desired outcome than the 1099 reporting for sure. I think that, but I think it's just, it's, it's a challenge because it's, it's counter to what the industry was built around. Um, but 5%. So yeah. if, you know, I think it sounds like we both agree, like it would stifle innovation in the U S mm. Mm-hmm. if implemented as written. So what would you suggest like at a very high level they tweak so that we did have a reporting regime? Uh, I think that they would, I think that they keep the reporting requirements robust on the centralized exchanges, but I think that DeFi is, the nature of DeFi is is hard to regulate in this in this way. And I think that any type of regulation related to, unless you had some zero knowledge identification that you could, um, I think that like decentralized IDs that are that are powered by uh, zero knowledge uh, tech would be able to accomplish this, where you're validating that someone is from a certain place without having to reveal any information about them on chain. Um, but I don't know if that would necessarily. From a, I don't know I don't understand zk tech from a technical standpoint enough to know if this would accomplish this, the, the goal while also protecting users. Um, yeah. So that's a knowledge gap on my end. I, I agree. I think um, requiring centralized exchange exchanges to, to report to 99s, I think that makes a ton of sense, right? Like they're mm-hmm. already having the KYC, mm-hmm. AML, all the, all those sorts of things. They have the information at their fingertips. They should already be reporting this information. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, when you get to DeFi and, and on-chain tra- tra- transactions, it just gets incredibly complex. And I just, I, I honestly don't even know if there is a regime that you can put in place that would be effective to require a lot of these non-custodial options to uh, to report 1099s. Because I think that it would be such a burden for these decentralized platforms to implement, and and the scope of which it, it, it you know basically encompasses everyone that's de- that's that's decentralized. And I think that the what would effectively happen is just they would just geo block anyone from the U.S. is what I is what I think, and then we would just be shut out for that reason because now they don't want to have to deal with the compliance nature of of allowing U.S. users. And I mean, I saw that when I was at 
Trustsoft, they didn't allow US-based users to participate in launch pads because they didn't want to have the scrutiny of the SEC. So they would just geo-block anyone from the US, they'd KYC everyone, and just ensure that you don't have a US passport or any US um, presence, and then they'd move forward. And I think that that would be kind of similar for how the rest of the industry would move. It's just, okay, if we have to do this for the US, any decentralized platform is probably just going to say, all right, we're going to exclude those users and, and move on. Um, so that's why I agree with you. I think it should be born on the centralized exchange. And from a practicality standpoint, if you're going to want to use crypto assets, you have to have, and you're a U.S. citizen, you kind of have to have some on and on ramps, mm-hmm. on and off ramps. So it's it's hard to avoid the KYC. Um, there's definitely ways around it. But um, like as we say with privacy coins, there's ways around the AML standpoint as well if, if, if you decide to go that route. So, um, yeah. Always going to be loopholes, but I think it's a challenge of, yeah, anyways, challenging topic for sure. Yeah, bring it, bringing it full circle. Um, you know, if, if there's anyone that works in, you know, for the U.S. government in, <laughs> in the position to, um, you know, help, you know, decide what some of these regimes look like and listening to this right now, um, how can we as an industry help you come up with a, a regime that is, you know, it is possible to comply with so that we can create this regulation in the US as opposed to driving this innovation offshore and potentially risking the regulation being developed in in a jurisdiction that the US may not be very well aligned with. Exactly. Pandora's box is open. So we need to kind of operate within it and and make sure that we're we're at the forefront and not losing another industry to other countries. Totally on board. Yeah. We're calling out to you. <laughs> IRS folks, listen to the Niche Necessity podcast. Um, all right, so on the on the topic of like risk management, kind of going down that same kind of road we're going down, what risk management strategies are are necessary for digital asset accounting? What what would you say are are necessary for that impl- implementation? Yeah, you know we've we've touched on uh, a couple of them so far. So client acceptance policy, right, mm-hmm. is going to be super key. Um, you know that concurring review that we have in place. I think that's also super important in helping us manage our risk. One of the one of the sub ledgers that we work with actually has a risk policy that I, I really really like, and and was one of the reasons why we chose to go with them. The client actually, when they connect their wallets and exchanges to the sub ledger, they have to um, they have to check a box that says. I have connected all of my wallets and all of my exchanges, and I certify that everything is complete. And that gives us, right, something to rely on that the client has provided us everything. So from a risk perspective, that is that's super key um, and would encourage others that are in the space to, to think about something similar. So what do you do in the instances where it's like provable on chain that you don't have all the sources? Because <laughs> I mean, like that happens all <laughs> the time where you're like, all right, well, you have, you know, 20 ETH going out and you only had 18 coming in, like I'm missing some source, you know, what's 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 going on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll we'll go back to the client in those cases, even though they've already certified. Yes, I provided everything. We'll we'll definitely go back to them and say, "Hey, it's it's very obvious that you haven't connected everything. Give us more information. Tell us what's missing, and we'll work with them in those cases." Okay. Yeah. Great. Makes sense. You know, slap the cuffs on them. <laughs> they got it wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. So. Yeah, I think you've alluded to it a little bit with you know the use of subledgers and stuff like that. But how do you guys ensure the accuracy and security of digital asset reporting? 
Yeah. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think we, we trust our clients, um, mm -hmm. going back to that client acceptance policy that we have, um, we have a, a lot of trust in our clients and we also have a, you know, standard that we have to apply to, right? Like we have to make sure that things make sense and, um, are, are, are within, you know, a, a normal, uh, you know, range. Right. Um, so we trust our clients, we work with our clients. And at the end of the day, I think, we lean towards wanting to trust them more than, than not believing in our clients when it's mm -hmm. obvious that things are missing. Um, you know, that's whenever we go back and, and work with them. Um, we trust a lot of the, the sub ledgers that we work with as well. We've did, you know, we do our due diligence anytime we onboard a, a sub ledger, right? Like it's important that they have a SOC two report. Um, we go through and, and use the, the sub ledger ourselves and make sure that it works. Um, and the information that's coming through is reliable before we'll, we'll onboard our clients into those. So those, those are some things that, that we generally do. Great. Um, as far as your future outlook for the industry, so what are some of the predictions you have for the future of digital assets in the accounting industry specifically? Yeah, um, maybe before I answer this question, uh, I should preface it with none of this is investment <laughs> advice. <laughs> so, the old trope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you go buy a crypto after this conversation uh, that you're listening to <laughs> here today and it tanks, it's not my fault. Okay. <laughs> you can blame that right. on Taylor. <laughs> yeah. All right. It'll be my fault. No, it's not. No, it's not. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now that we got that disclaimer out of the way, um, you know, I think public blockchains are are here to stay. And I'm personally bullish on several different um, things within public blockchains. Uh, one of those being tokenizing real world assets. I think, uh, you know, there's probably some need to solve for, for privacy issues on that one. But once that's solved, I think tokenizing real world assets is going to take off. And we're already seeing TradFi, right, adopt a lot of the things like JP Morgan is tokenizing deposits with JP Morgan or JPM coin or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, TradFi is already moving into the space and there are several other um, use cases out there like tokenizing securities, um, Securitize, I think is is one of the firms in that space. So uh, I'm super, um, super bullish on the overall ecosystem being here to stay. Um, now, I think that there's going to be some winners, some losers, just like the dot-com bubble, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the big market caps will, will probably be here to stay for a while, similar to like the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons and all those types of companies that made it through the decline after the dot-com bubble. Um, and then, you know, I think being, being a blockchain or crypto accountant, whatever you want to call it, is eventually going to just be synonymous with just being a regular accountant. Because I think if you work with financial institutions, if you work with tech companies, supply chain companies, manufacturers, they're all going to have some sort of blockchain technology in their normal, uh, you know, day-to-day -day operations. And so I think you're just, you're just going to start to see this a lot more. Um, and so, yeah, I, th I think it's here to stay. Yeah, I think, I think you're right on. I think that, you know, every, the, the thing that really made blockchain and 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 the crypto digital asset space click for me with smart contracts and i think that you know as you're stating 
every aspect of the business, I think, is going to move towards some sort of on-chain activity, whether it's from supply chain management, um, whether it's from uh, smart contracts using being used as escrow, or whether it's um, you know, I, my one of one of the ideas I've had for for payroll is is payroll vesting, so that if you're a you know if you're on a, on a salary and you know maybe every day of the week that you work in real time, you're accruing that salary that you can then withdraw from a smart contract so that you have your money on demand as you've earned it, you know, stuff like that. I feel like it's just a no brainer because if you can eliminate the whole payday loan uh, industry, just by having a, a smart contract based payroll system, that's just a, an idea that I've, I've always thought would be a cool use case for the industry, stuff like that. I feel like if you can better the business, it's going to all follow suit and we're going to start, it's going to be ubiquitous. And that's what this whole podcast is about is that transition from a niche industry to a necessity for accounting and tax professionals, because it's here to stay. And it's just a, it's a more equitable financial system, I think, than we have right now. Um, That's super, that's super interesting. I like that idea. There's a, there's a book that I read recently. um, It's called Ethereum for business. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Yeah, um, it, it's a good book. I recommend it, especially because you're in this industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a ton of use cases in that book uh, about where this is going and how smart contracts are going to revolutionize the world of business, um, especially for uh, you know contracts. If you think about normal contracts in today's world between two companies, when you can just take that, automate it in a smart contract on a on a on a blockchain, that's that's where the author essentially suggest that we're we're going yeah i love that i think that's that's like when i heard first heard about smart contracts that was like my aha moment i was like you know because i heard about bitcoin in 2013 when i was at pwc but i i was like and it, you know i was my our first year and and some people were discussing it and i th- thought it was just like way over my head and didn't think too much of it but when i finally heard about eth and smart contracts that's where i was like oh okay all this makes sense to me and i think you're right i think that I got to read that book. I'm going to go pick that up and, and, and get into it because it sounds like um, a lot more use cases are identified in there as well. Yeah. It's a good um, read. Yeah. Cool. So how would you say that accounting firms should prepare uh, for the increasing integration of these assets? Yeah. Um, here we go again. Sound like a broken record. <laughs> you know, just uh, invest in understanding how the technology works. Um, mm-hmm. Get your hands dirty. Um yeah. And, and I also think that with public accounting firms, right, I think we've seen a trend recently towards more non-traditional hires than traditional hires or your traditional CPAs. And I think that in this space is specifically we'll see more non-traditional hires in CPA firms, you know, thinking about people that have maybe some coding experience or understand Python or, or know how mm-hmm. to code a smart contract or audit a smart contract, things like that, I think are going to be even more important for, for firms to target in the future. Yeah. I, um, I interviewed Amber Welch uh, a couple of days yeah. ago for this podcast and, and she was talking about how she, you know, everyone thought she was crazy when she took a degree in accounting with computer science, you know, 10 or so years ago. And it's like, I feel like that's going to be the the golden kind of goose that you're looking for in an accounting firm in the next, you know, within the next five years, because people who understand the systems or, or systems as they, as they operate in a computer science background, it's going to be extremely um, valuable in an accounting firm because things are going to move that way, whether it's through automation, through AI or, or blockchain or whatever. 
all those skills are going to be super necessary. Absolutely. Uh, and here's another use case for you. I have a degree in accounting and management information systems. So there you go. There you go. Nice. Um, so any, any final thoughts on, on the importance of embracing digital assets and accounting? Uh, I know we've, we've kind of, we've talked a lot about this, but any, any closing, closing thoughts from you? Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, get your hands dirty. Um, mm -hmm. and, and if you're listening to this and you're wondering, okay, well, how do I get my hands dirty? Um, you know, go set up a, an account on a centralized exchange, like a Coinbase or Kraken or Gemini, whatever, um, one that, that you feel like you can trust. Um, and then, you know, buy just a little bit of, of crypto. Uh, Ethereum is probably a good place to start um, to, to, to get your hands dirty. Buy an amount that you wouldn't mind if you lost it. It's no big deal. You know, start with like $25, send it to your own non-custodial wallet, and then, you know, connect that into a, a decentralized exchange and, and play around with DeFi and then uh, maybe connect it to like an open C and play around with NFTs and just kind of go, go down that um, rabbit hole. Uh, there's a ton of YouTube videos out there that you can watch to help you. Um, there's newsletters that you, you can subscribe to like Blockworks, um, podcasts like Bankless. Um, and then, you know, if you're uh, in the finance area in crypto, get involved with the uh, crypto CFOs, right? Yeah. Hell yeah. Thanks for the, the name drop. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's all really great advice. I think that, um, the, 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 the experiential knowledge is where it's at. And I think that, that you're right on with that. Um, so how can listeners learn a little bit more about Forbis, your practice and, and the services they offer in the digital asset space? Yeah, for sure. Um, so forvis.com, um, we also have um, a regular uh, dripping of, you know, thought leadership. We call them foresights. That's a little play on, on our on our name. So mm -hmm. you can go out to our foresights webpage and there's a tag for digital assets that you can specifically subscribe to just our digital asset foresights. Um, and then, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you want to also follow me on LinkedIn, I love connecting with people on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me there. Uh, Nick crypto, Nick far is, is my name on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Nick. I love the work you're doing over at Forbis and always a pleasure connecting with you. So thanks again for joining. Yeah. Thanks for having me on and love what you guys are doing at uh, crypto CFOs too.